Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. of the Lord. Glad to be able to be here. Continue to pray for all these. This just might be the way that the season's going to go. I'm not going to highlight it. We'll pray for the people when they're sick, but I'm not going to talk anything more about it because I don't want to give any more glory than what it should get. All right, and so we'll just go on from there. I am thankful tonight, though, for the house of the Lord, the people of God. Um, I was telling my wife tonight things have fell as they did with the Masons, of course, on a trip, and then the other Masons sick. It had been a long time since we had done anything like this. I didn't even know where my stuff was because I tucked it back somewhere. Didn't have to ever worry about it. Uh, but as I was sitting in my house last night, my wife was on a Zoom call uh, for National Women's Esprit uh, for a planning session, actually, for some things that's coming up in this year. And one of the pastor's wife uh, had made mention where the, uh, over in a city in an area where they was going to have a conference. She said, we have music. Uh, meaning instruments, musical instruments, but we don't have anybody to play them, so every one of our services is done by a, a track. And when I heard that, I felt about that big because I don't have anything to complain about. Don't have anything to complain about. Somebody's having every service from some track on a CD player, and we have the privilege of most of the time having at least one you know, good musician here to be able to sing and praise and worship by. Don't have anything to complain. Amen. So I'm thankful to the Lord. Esther chapter number 7, and I'm going to read the first four, four verses, and then you can be seated tonight, the first four verses, and then you can be seated. The Bible says, So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen, and the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther, and it shall be granted thee? What is thy request? And it shall be performed even to half of the kingdom. It may You might feel like deja vu. We've already covered this. Well, he said this about three times, you know, in Scripture. They've had these type of meetings. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, and I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. We'll start with that tonight. We'll be, I would think, very easily be able to get through this chapter. Amen. This evening, uh, and I want to talk about my people are his people. My people are his people. It is good to have Addison and Jen. Amen. Tonight, after bouts of not able to be here, good to have them both on the men. Amen. Here, and we're appreciative of that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you. God, I'm appreciative, Lord Jesus, of your goodness. I'm appreciative, Lord, of your mercy. I pray, oh God, tonight, Lord, that you're able to touch us anew and afresh, God, by your spirit. 
I pray, oh God, today you're able to strengthen, Lord, each and every home and family, Lord, health, emotionally, God, spiritually. God, every aspect of their lives, God, will not fail, Lord Jesus, to thank you, Lord, for hearing the prayer. God, touch us now through your word. Help us, God, to be sensitive to the voice of the Lord. God, that speaks consistently through the word of God in the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. And you may be seated tonight in Jesus, in Jesus' name. Chapter number seven, and I don't want to do no service to you all over here, but since there's more over here, I'm probably going to a lot of times just be looking over here. No disservice to any of you. Amen. Yeah. Uh, But nonetheless, chapter number seven of Esther, life and death are in the balance for a few people or could possibly in the balance for a few people. When we begin to read it with everything that's happened thus far in our story, don't have time to rehash it all, but nonetheless... We are looking at a threshold here where we may be asking ourselves a few questions about will Mordecai be placed on the gallows that Haman hath made? Will Haman maybe, will he even die uh, for this plot that he has schemed and organized against the Jewish people? Then there's other thoughts concerning life and death in chapter number 7 that, you know, will Esther, will Esther, will she end up dying and she and her people the Jews will they die altogether because there's something we must understand at this particular juncture in the road and that is Mordecai is still in the dark about any plan that's been devised against him he's no wiser than anybody else on the street concerning gallows having been made and uh, an attempt already been made to get uh, the okay and the endorsement of the king to put him on the gallows. So he's still in the dark about all of this. Yet in this chapter, Esther comes uh, and has this banquet with Haman and with the king, and she's going to plead for herself. She's going to plead for her people. And Haman in this same chapter is going to be pleading for himself. That's going to come out of left field. He didn't see that he would have to be pleading for himself at this particular banquet, but he will be. He hasn't until now, but he will. And he didn't even know. He didn't even know that the Jewish people were the queen's people until this moment. Until this chapter, he has no idea that she is a Jewish woman and that those are her people And so before this short chapter, it's only 10 verses, before this chapter ends, someone is going to die. Someone is going to die. And everything seems to move quite quickly. Actually, in chapter 7, we're another banquet. There's some words that's uh, spoken across uh, the table, so to speak. A lot of things happen, and someone ends up dying. There's uh, things that seem to be moving very, very quickly. It's like, boom, all of a sudden, someone's hit the fast-forward button. But in reality, this thing has been grinding very slowly in the background. Although certain parts of it we're not aware of other parts of it, it's been grinding very slowly to this point in the background since chapter number 3. And the moral of the whole story that's found in chapter number 7 is actually this statement. Karen Jobs stated this, and I believe this is true for this particular chapter, is this, that life and death are determined by identification with a people. Life and death are determined by identification with a people. See, Haman's primary mistake, his primary mistake happened whenever he made his target. Shift from being just the person, Mordecai, to the people, the Jews. Whenever he made that shift, that was his mistake. Because although Mordecai 
never respected Haman as we have seen thus far, never respected his office, never respected his position in life, that didn't mean that all the Jewish people were disrespectful. It's a common standard error that we still yet have in our, our society today. It's a burden that we as Christians even oft time bear, and that is this. If one Christian acts outside of the boundaries of Christian character, then everybody just labels Christians they're a bunch of frauds. Only takes one, one person with immorality, and they're all they're, that's just the way they're all. Just one of them to be mean-spirited, that's the way they all are. And it's just the burden that we bear. And I realize that uh, in a perfect world, that one part of the church should be a representative of the whole of the church. But whenever, he, let's get just real for a moment, when you insert people into the formula, then we assume flaws. And it's the same with the Knights of Columbus, and it's the same with the Rotary Club, and it's the same with the employees at Walmart. If we're, if we're asking for the church to be less flawed when it's made up of people, we're just imperfect people that just happen to be filled with a perfect spirit. And it's what, what we give ourselves to day by day, whether or not more of our old life shows through or our new life shows through. And so here is Haman that's taking something out upon the whole Jewish people over one Jewish man, amen, Mordecai. Mordecai. And so this is really the mistake then of Haman, amen. Because again, as Christians, we will never reach a place of perfection until our change comes, until we're trans transformed from mortal to immortality at, at the rapture of the church, amen. There will always be a sense of imperfection in us, but we do have a perfect spirit that we need to give ourselves willingly to day by day, and that is our choice. That is within under our control and within our power. And so Haman's days were numbered the moment that the Jewish people became his go, his aim of affliction. When that happened, his days were numbered because God, as we've already said in the study, but I will rehearse, God has already told Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, all the way back in Genesis chapter number 15, he said, I will bless them that bless you and I will curse him that curses thee. That's been the promise upon Abraham and the Jewish people and them as a nation ever since Abraham. And so if, 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 if Haman is going to lay a finger upon the Jewish people, he's not just messing with a nation or a people. He's messing with God's treasure. He's messing with God's people. That's the reason why today, even still in the world, we talk about nations and countries. Oh, it's a horrible thing whenever a country doesn't stand alongside Israel. That goes all the way back to Genesis 15. That's why, because if you rise up against Israel and the Jewish people, you're rising up against God. So that's the reason why we pray for the peace of Israel, as the psalmist David told us. It's the reason why we, we admonish people to do those things, because you become an enemy of God when you become an enemy of what he has called his people. His people. And so Haman gets on the, the wrong side of God, we might say, the moment that he puts the Jewish people in his 
crosshairs. He brings a curse upon his life, and that curse is about ready to materialize to the apex right here in chapter number 7. Not just that, but to add to Haman's plight, remember, uh, we've looked at this, that Haman was from the descendants of an Agite. He's part of that clan of Amalekites. That however long ago in Saul, King Saul's day, every last one of them should have been utterly destroyed. And he wouldn't even be in existence today had that job been done because the Amalekites were some of the first ones that attacked the Jewish people when they came out of Egyptian bondage. So they have a mark upon them. Why? Because again, they're getting on the wrong side of God. By attacking the Jewish people that's coming, they were some of the first ones attacking the weary and the stragglers and the sick. Some of the first ones, God said, mark them. He said, remember Amalek and those that are associated with them because I'm going to blot them out. Well, listen, God's promises, I've said it before, may grind slow, but they'll eventually meet their mark. Amen. And so here's Haman, a part of this family, a part of this clan of Agagites that go all the way to Amalekite, all the way back even to the days of Saul. And even uh, Haman's wife had noticed this the second time he had come home, first time rejoicing, second time sulking. When he came home, he, she told him quite plainly, amen, in Esther 6.13, she said, Honey, if Mordecai be the seed of the Jews before whom thou hast begun to fall. She says, thou shalt not prevail against him, but thou shalt surely fall before him. She's already picked upon. We're fighting a losing battle. If this goes beyond just a mortal man, but you're, you're messing with God's, because God said, Israel, the Jews, they're my treasure. They're my special people. I've called them unto myself. I put my name upon them. And so you mess with them, you mess with God. And all of this, to a certain degree, reminds me a little bit of a New Testament story. The Bible talks about the disciples going about preaching and teaching Jesus. On more than one occasion, they were called, keep your voice down, don't teach in his name. They sometimes were, were, were chastised verbally and also physically, set back out not to speak in his name or preach anymore in his name. And on one of those occasions, guess what? They got released, they go back out, they start preaching teaching Jesus all over again. Uh, regardless of what was said. And some of the high priests and the councilmen came to them and began to say some things to them because they're continuing to preach Jesus. And they even wanted to, uh, to attempt to kill these men for doing this. And then there was a, uh, someone with a sound voice with some guidance among the people. Gamaliel was his name. He was respected among the priests and respected among the people. And he said, listen, folks. He said, uh, you better watch about who you're choosing to mess with, in essence. You better be you tread very carefully about who you're wishing to silence or who you're wishing to kill. Pre-adventure, you may be fighting against God. He said, there's several different people that's come across the landscape. He said, and some had great followings, and people have killed them, and their followings have just diminished, and there's nothing more of them. He said, that might be the case for some. He says, you never know. If this thing is of God, he said, there's no man that will be able to overthrow it. But if it's not, it will dissolve. Look what the Bible says, Acts 5 and verse 38. And now I say unto you, this is Gamaliel speaking, refrain from these men and let them alone. 
For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. And so it makes me think of this whole Haman and Mordecai in Jewish story. Even in the book of Esther, Haman, do whatever you want or whatever you will, but you might find yourself, you're really fighting against God. It's more than just maybe a, a, a group of people or a mortal man. You might find yourself fighting against God. And if that's the case, go on and make your gallows, plot your plans, make your devices. There's nothing that you'll be able to do. Huh? Do you understand you have picked the wrong battle when you choose to fight against something that's God's? Devise your schemes, plot out whatever you want, get a conspiracy in a group of people. It'll fall flat on its face if you see yourself fighting against God. Amen. He will win time and again, over and over. And this proves true even for Haman and his story of being an Agagite. Ag there it is, Agagite. You almost have to gag in order to say that. Agagite opposing the Jewish people. And so we're coming to the second banquet. They've already had the first, about 24 hours or so have elapsed. Now they're in the second. There's been the sleepless night of the king between these two that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And so tensions are high at this second banquet. It's a little tense because, number one, the king is eager to hear what Esther's request is. She's been kind of leading him along the way like a, uh, carried on a stick here, just kind of leading him along. He's very eager to hear what her request is because remember again, she has risked her life to have audience with the king. And so this must, there must be some, something serious, something very important in her request. So he's eager to hear it. And by teasing him along the way, he's that much more hungry to hear what this request is. He is wondering in the back of his mind, and maybe that was part of his sleepless night. I really wonder what she wanted. Huh? You ever had people just bring you to the point and says, oh, I'll tell you later. You're like, I wonder what it was going to be. Some of us more than others are like that. <laughs> I, wonder what, I wonder what she wanted. And so that's a tension in the life of the king as he's coming to this banquet. Haman, Haman has a tension in his life as well. Why? He wanted to come to this banquet and just enjoy himself, knowing that Mordecai was going to be pierced on the Ogallo, so to speak. But he did not have his way. He's been parading through the city all morning, right? With, with, with Mordecai on the steed and saying all these accolades and words about him. So he's attempting to come to the second banquet, trying to enjoy himself. Amen. On the heels of all this celebration for the guy that's his enemy, the one that he just hates and he doesn't like. And so here he is, he's dealing with disappointment from the morning, but he's trying to be happy at the banquet with the king and queen because he's the only one that's been invited that is a kingship or queenship, right? And so he's trying to make the best of it. No doubt he's relieved to be with this company of royalty now and being the only one. But now there's Esther, there's tension with Esther here because as she strung everybody along now, she's at the point, she told them, I'll tell you at the next banquet, my request, so there's, there's no turning back now. You know, she said, I'm going, to t I'm going to tell you at the next banquet, and so here we are the next banquet. She can't, like, come again tomorrow to another banquet. No, this can't be endless banquets. <laughs> she has to say something now. And so she understands her skin that's in the game here too. Why? Because she's kept concealed something all along that no one know, don't know anything about. 
her identity, her association with the Jewish people. And so now she must put herself entirely out there. Now she's got to completely surrender to the dynamics of anything, everything and whatever's going to take place and happen, right? She's already done it, you know, getting the scepter, but now, she, you know, nothing was stated. She, she, she hasn't really revealed the reason for her being there until now. And so she realizes, I know what the king's saying. Every time I mention uh, this petition and request, he's always saying, I'll grant it. I know what he is saying, but when the rubber meets the road and he really hears the request, is he really going to want to follow through? I, I, I know. And then the tension for Esther is this. She has a problem. More than what I even just mentioned. She has a problem. Because she wants to bring up the decree that was made. But that decree that was made, though authored by Haman, had the insignia seal of the king. So she has to be able to bring all of this up in such a way she can make her point without the, making the king feel too horrible, right? Because he also seems to have this power to do something about it. So how can I make it known but not go overcorrect where I make him just upset at me personally because he's got skin in the game. Now, he's a little duped. He didn't really investigate when everything was made right, the decree, but his signet ring is still the one that sealed the seal of this decree so she has a problem she's she's got to handle everything tactfully huh tactfully and sometimes tact is a lost art mm -hmm. you you can't you know someone will say you have a little hair out of place another one will say your hair looks horrible the difference between tact and not tact she had to handle things tactfully tactfully because she knows already, we know already, Hazard seems to be a wrathful man. Just a little bit, he's like short-wicked. Kaboom. He's going to go off. He's going to get angry and mad and frustrated and upset. And she knows that he doesn't think for himself. God help the men that don't think for themselves. He's a wrathful man and he don't think for himself. So once again, the king poses his question in our few verses that we read to get started what is your petition what is your request and he states this just a couple different ways petition request he does this more than once he's did this before now and it's as though that the words are translated petition and request they're slightly different but since one follows the other it's almost like me asking you what do you want or what do you desire I'm saying the same thing. I'm just switching it up a little bit with the word usage that I'm using. What do you want or what do you desire? It's as though it's the same thing that he is requesting of her. And so he assures Esther, I'm going to grant you what you want. And she again plays to the ego of the king. Because she says, if I have found favor, right? She kind of displaces it all over there. If I have, if I have found favor, if it pleases the king, then thus and so. And her petition is for her life, and her request is for the life of her people. Now, here's the thing. If petition and request that was used in the two questions of the king are basically relate to the same thing or one and the same, then when she says my request is my, my life or my petition is my life and my request is the life of my people, then there is an essence that they are related in one and the same thing as well. What I mean is this, I, Esther is identifying with her people. 
She's identifying with her people. Her people and her have the same identity. They're Jewish. She doesn't mention being a Jew. She just says, I have a request and a petition. Both of it concerns lives, the lives of my people and my life. She's identifying with a people. They're my people. They're my people. And so to spare, King, to spare their lives is to spare my life because we share an identity. We share an identity. She, she never mentions Jew or Jewish. Read chapter number seven. She never mentions Jew or Jewish. She just talks about my people, these people. Amen. She's as close to saying as she ever will that she's a Jewish woman and doesn't. But she's just saying my people. She doesn't say it specifically, but she identifies with a grouping of people. Now listen, Esther, of course, she begins, as we read through this, she begins to reference the decree that was made earlier in our story. And here's some things we just got to keep straight in our minds. Although Haman presented the people to King Ahasuerus as a certain people, we know that the people were the Jewish people. And Haman knew that Mordecai was a Jew. You'll go back to chapter 3. Those that stood around with Mordecai and seen that he wouldn't bow, they said, Haman, why don't you walk by and we'll see what happens because he's a Jew. Haman knows that Mordecai is a Jew, but Haman doesn't know that Esther is a Jew. Ahasuerus knows that Mordecai is a Jew. We learned of that in chapter number 6 when he talked about doing the honor for Mordecai. He said, go do this for Mordecai the Jew. He states that in chapter number 6. Amen. Ahasuerus knows that Mordecai is a Jew. But Ahasuerus doesn't know who these certain people are that's in the decree. Is everybody following me here? You got to keep all the parts here. So both Ahasuerus and, and, and Haman know that Mordecai is a Jew. Haman knows the certain people are Jews. Ahasuerus doesn't know that that certain people are Jews. Remember, he just said, go do whatever you want. There's my ring. Boop. Good job. Is everybody okay? You're going to have to follow here. You're going to have to track with Pastor tonight. So Esther knows. What does Esther know? Okay? So we know some of the who knows who doesn't know on this side and not on this side. What about Esther? What does Esther know? Esther knows that Mordecai is a Jew, right? He reared her. She knows the people to be killed. The certain people, the, the ones that the decree is made out, she knows that they're Jewish people. She knows she's a Jew, supposed to be. Jew by genealogy, of course. She knows. But neither a Ahasuerus nor Haman know that she is a Jew because Esther has kept it concealed and not lived according to her identity. Someone say amen. So you got all the who knows what? <laughs> so before all of this, before all of this, the approach was it's too risky. It's too risky to claim my identity while living in the Persian Empire because they don't live like Jewish people. If I'm going to have any success, if I'm going to grow in this society, if I'm going to have any chance at the acclaim of queenship, it's too risky to claim my identity. But now, but now, 
it's too dangerous for her not to claim her identity. Why? Death is on the line. Claiming her identity among the Jewish people, all of this appears just to be a circle for her death trapped here because they're supposed to die. If you claim that you're a Jew, man, it just puts you in the death trap along with all of them. But Esther claiming her identity as a Jew was basically this, sharing that she was a part of God's people because they weren't just any people. They were God's people. It wasn't just claiming to be of a particular tribe or a particular family. Claiming to be a Jew was claiming to be his. It was claiming to be God's. The very ones, claiming to be a part of people, the very ones that God said, who blesses them, I'll bless. And who curses them, I will curse. And so Esther, at this point in time, with death on the line, she identifies with God's people. And Haman has opposed God's people. And so life and death, in essence, will be determined by who they identify as or who they identify with. You said, Brother McGee, hogwash, 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 hogwash. New Testament scripture tells us even in New Testament that deliverance for the people of God, deliverance for God's church is being found as being one of his people. If you want deliverance from this life, if you want deliverance from death as we know it, that's even beyond the grave, the second death, amen, deliverance from that is by being a part of God's people. Jesus said in the book of John, he told them in in John 14, 19, he said, because I live, he says, ye shall live also. He told them in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, please get this tonight if you get nothing else I say. He says for Paul to the church of Corinth, for as in Adam, everybody say in Adam, all die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. He knows what he's saying. He's saying what you identify with is going to determine life or death for you. What you identify with is going to determine heaven or hell for you. What you identify with is going to determine whether you go in the rapture or not. It's all about who and what you identify with. And you must, for Esther, at the point that death was on the line, she says, I identify with his people. They may look like they are under the prescription of death and they're going to die and there's woe that's going to come on them. But wait a minute, wait a minute. This ain't any people. These are God's people. And he'll curse whoever's trying to curse them. He'll he'll bring repayment to whoever's trying to do wrong unto them. Folks, you don't have nothing to fear about when you identify as his. You're you're thinking you're going to lose face. No, 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 no. When death is on the line, it's important to know who you're identified with and to and for. That's in Adam or in Christ. Amen. Esther's plea, my people, they're his people. Yeah, we're like, we're just like this right here. Yeah, it matters when death's on the line, don't it? It matters when death's on the line. People laying in beds, we've seen it, Bishop. People laying in beds, that's flirted around, did everything they want to under the sun until death comes on the line. They're ready to talk about God. They're ready to talk about repentance. And they're ready about getting their life straight. Why? Because they know identify with a people 
is a determiner in life and death and the afterlife. Oh, yeah. Oh, someone say amen. Can I tell you tonight, we don't need to wait till death. In this, in this aspect of Esther, we don't need to wait to share or live our identity until death's on the line. We need to have a made-up mind right now. Hear me? We need to get a made-up mind right now and determine in our souls and our spirit, I'm going to be in Christ. Huh? I'm going to try to live to the best of my ability every day by the help of the Lord, right? He's giving you the Holy Ghost to help you. You know that, right? Huh? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God that worketh in you. It's his spirit that's working in you to step right, live right, talk right. Huh? His spirit is in you for that purpose. The more you submit to that spirit, the more you'll be like him. Grow into this image and the stature of Christ. His people will be your people. It's important when death's on the line. It's Amen. And so everything becomes a little more, I got to hurry. Crystal clear. I told him last week. I, I didn't finish all my notes. I told them I was going to be better to them than my people. But I'm not doing that for you all tonight. Okay. <laughs> Things come a little crystal clear in verse 4. Haman, because Esther uses words of the decree, she says to the king and to Haman, we are sowed, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. When you look back, whenever the letter was sent out in chapter number 3, Guess what it says? The letters were sent, the Bible says, for the purpose of to destroy, to kill, and to cause, to perish all the Jews, young and old. And it continues. She, some of the same verbiage, some of the same wording is used. That should have struck something for sure in Haman's mind, who's wrote all this thing out and used the king's seal to seal it. For sure should have stuck out in his mind. And what does he know then in that moment, Sister Sheila? If he's hearing her say, these people were going to be destroyed. My people. We're going to be, and she's quoting some of the same verbiage from the decree. What does Haman know in that moment? Haman knows that Esther is a Jew. In this moment, and I wish I could have been there to see his face. When the light bulb moment came, I'm fighting against not just the Jewish people. He already knew that, but I'm fighting against King Ahasuerus' wife, the queen. <laughs> and at very least, the king knows that there are some people without label right now. You're still yet in verse chapter number 7 because he didn't know who this certain people was. There's some people right now that are determined to die that are the queen's people. He at least knows that, Brother Fred. And so here's Esther. She's being very tactful because of the king. He's to blame just as much as Haman is to blame. She, the, the, she says, we are sowed, Remember? Haman was going to pay so much money to King Ahasuerus for this destruction of this quote-unquote certain people that he didn't ask about. He's going to be paid a, a, a sizable, handsome sum of money. And so she says, we were sowed. And she says, listen, King, if we were just sowed to be bondmen or bondwomen, I wouldn't even be bringing it up or, bar or, or bothering the king. But we have been sowed unto death. We have been sowed unto death death and so Haman here he is he's devised the decree and Ahasuerus he okayed it without knowing the details of the decree of who but when we look at it yeah Haman's to blame King Ahasuerus seems to blame but I'll go a step further Mordecai is to blame too because his 
No good stubbornness that he's had all along the way. Huh? Kind of provoked the whole writing of the order to be written to begin with. And I won't stop there. Esther, you're to blame too. Because had Haman knew you was a Jew from the beginning, he might not have never attacked the queen's people. And so it is in the way of life that we even presently live now. We want to blame that one for this and this one for that. Huh? I want to blame them for wrong. I want to blame Adam and Eve for sin. Oh, you know who put Christ on the cross? It was the Romans. Others say, no, it was the Jews. Others say, no, it was the Gentiles. Why, everybody's throwing blame. Amen. At whose fault it is that this happened or that happened. But the fact of the matter is this. Humanity, Christian or not, is to blame. Humanity, wherever we fall on the scale, we are to blame. I'm at fault. Esther's at fault. Mordecai's at fault. Ahasuerus is at fault. Haman is at fault. Everybody is at fault when it comes down to it. Everyone is to blame. But hear me well tonight. There is only one that can truly get the credit for the salvation of the people. It's not Ahasuerus. It's not for sure Haman. It's not even Esther. And it's not Mordecai. It is God. God is the only one that gets the credit for the salvation. Amen. And when the people were sold, God in Christ Jesus through the man Christ Jesus he was sold as well for 30 pieces of silver so we wouldn't have to be he died our death while the Bible says we were yet sinners and yet promised you and I hope when we're the ones to blame he gave hope to his people when we're the ones to blame the Bible says Romans 5 look at Romans 5 9 you can read Romans 7 and 8. That's, that's the scripture that says, Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet pre-adventure for a good man. Some would even dare to die. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And then verse number 9 says, Much more then, being now justified by his, Jesus' blood, we shall, look at it, we shall be saved from the wrath. <laughs> we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Why? I'm his people. His, right? Pronoun, right? Ownership. It's personal. I'm his because he purchased. He purchased me. Acts says, with his precious blood, he purchased us. I'm his. I'm his people. And since I am his, I'm covered by that blood that was shed and shall be saved from the wrath. What are you saying? There was wrath that was going to come on his people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I tell you that death was knocking on the door? And I'm not talking about a physical death. I'm talking about an eternal second death, doom, destruction, hades and hell. But I was saved from the wrath why? Because I was his. I'm saved from the wrath because I am his. There's not one person that's truly his that's going to have to walk through one quarter of hell. There's not one of them that's going to have to last a day in hell and then go to heaven. Because they're his. They're safe from the wrath. From the weeping and the gnashing of teeth 
where the fire dieth not and the worm, the fire does not quench, the worm dieth not, safe from the wrath. Why? Because I'm his, and I identify with that. I identify with who he is, what he is, what his nature is, what his character is. I identify with that. And he purchased me. Amen. He was sold so I wouldn't have to be sold. His blood makes me whole. I'm sharers of his identity, his people. And so we're saved from the wrath through him. Look at verse number five. We got to hurry. It's all right. It'll go quick. Starting with verse five. Then the king of Hazarus. So he's learned all this, right? So for bombing, all this stuff. Then the king of Hazarus. You thought we was already further along in this chapter, didn't you? Then the king of Hazarus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he? Oh, now you're interested. Isn't it amazing? Now you're, you didn't, you could care less when the decree was first made, but now you're interested. Why? Because this hits close to home? Why? Because the little doll queen's going to be impacted by this? This hits close to home? So now you're, never seems to amaze me how interested we can get when it starts hitting close to home. Who? Who is he and where is he and what durst presume, presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, the adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. Yeah, she didn't waste too many words. Then Haman was afraid. Yeah, that would probably be a good response. Before the king and the queen... And the king arising from the banquet of wine and his wrath went into the palace garden and Haman stood up to make requests for his life to Esther the queen for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Boy, he's smart. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereupon Queen Esther was. Not necessarily the posture you want to be in. Then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also <laughs> the gallows fit the cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, then was the king's wrath pacified. Now here's, I don't know if it's amazing or what it is. Pitiful and amazing. She's went through all this, she said all this, and verse 5 just proves to us that the king's ignorant. Who? What? He's ignorant. And he's ignorant to a degree because of his own choosing. And there's a lot of places we could go, and we don't have time to go there. But just let those words sink in. He's ignorant by his own choosing. He never asked who when the original decree was made. Who does it impact? Who does it affect? No, 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 no. Who does it concern? But he's interested now about the who. He's interested about the where. And Esther started, Esther stated rather what Haman was. She labeled him. He's, he's an adversary. He's an enemy. And she states his name. It is Haman. She's led the king to this moment. 
She's very, very wise in how she handled this. It's kind of the same way whenever King David committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet shows up to him and he begins to tell him a story. There was a man that had a little lamb and another one that had a, a, quite a few more, but there was a sojourner coming and that man that had several asked this man that had the little ewe lamb if he could have his lamb to prepare it for. And so he stole this person's lamb. They were, In other words, he was getting at the, David was getting enraged over the principle of someone taking one man's little lamb amen and slaughtering it for another guy he was enraged and at that moment that David was identifying with the principle Nathan says you're the man Esther has done a very similar thing here she's got she's got a hazardous worked up over what in the world's taking place and she's about ready to lay down the gauntlet Haman's the man and if you read between the lines hazardous you have some skin in the game Hmm? says the man the man is Haman and Haman's afraid he should be Ahasuerus is mad uh, well yeah yeah if he's gonna you know tell me that my wife is on the death list I guess I would be upset too well not a guess I would be upset too help me out here sister Malin don't you start taking me down dark paths my god Haman is afraid Ahasuerus is mad Haman knew by the actions of the king that he's in trouble and Esther, to a certain degree, is probably relieved because she finally got this off her chest, right, and off her shoulders. And so only the king, and some of this is just a little information in history to appreciate what's happened here in the closing verses. Only the king, and I suppose the eunuchs that worked with the, the harem, with the, 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 the houses of the women, only the king and the eunuchs, because the eunuchs, of course, was taking away their privilege of being able to find any satisfaction with the king, because a eunuch is someone that's castrated, all right? cannot find no reproductive or sexual pleasure with any of these ladies so only the king and probably the eunuchs according to harem protocol of the culture could be left alone with a woman of the harem so where the king got up and left in reality Haman should have left too but he stays as a matter of fact even whenever there was another man in the room according to harem protocol of that culture a man was only to be within not any closer than seven steps of one of the ladies of the harem. So there's some things here that's starting to come about that's a little problematic because here's the king in the garden and there's Haman still in the room alone with the queen. Number one, he shouldn't have been there alone with the queen. You say, well, the king left. Well, again, he should have taken, he should have been proactive and left as well. And so the king's trying to piece all this together, right? Because if he's starting to pick up on anything, he's understanding, I'm, I got some fault in this too. So how do I judge Haman without exposing myself? Hmm? How can I judge Haman without making myself at spot? Because at fault, because my signet seal. Is, was upon that decree that he made. And that showed my agreement to what was stated. And everybody knows that received the decree what was stated in the decree. So he's wanting to save face here with a little bit of reason, right? Save a little face. But whenever the king returns to the banquet area, he finds that Haman has fallen on, they did their eating typically on couches. They reclined as they ate. It's even saying that 
at the Last Supper in New Testament. They reclined as they ate with their feet away from the table. He fell up on that couch. He fell up on that, that seating area, that bed that sometimes it is even referred to as. He fell down there at the same time that the king is coming back into the banquet area. Aiden, it's just a bad time to be on the couch. It's a bad time to be in the room for that matter, but it's a bad time even to be on the couch. And so when the king sees this, I don't know if there were lights that went off in his head, but here's a perfect reason to take care of Haman without getting into the whole degree, the decree thing. He's, he's making, whether he was or wasn't, he's making advances toward the queen, or as it would appear. And so I'm going to hang him because he, is, he has done this very thing. He has done this very thing. And as he's stating this stuff, they're, they're covering up the head of, of Haman. But we know, according to Scripture, I believe probably the king even knows. Haman wasn't trying to rape the queen. For that matter, according to everything we just learned, Haman really wasn't trying to kill the queen. He didn't know she was a Jew. He's begging for his life. He's asking for mercy. But he has known from his wife and others, and should see in the handwriting, that he set himself against God by becoming an enemy of God's people. There's historians, Herodotus, in the old culture and day of the Old Testament that state that in the Persian kingdom, a man could not be killed just for a single offense. It took more than a single offense. So the king wouldn't really have been able to just take him because he was leaning on the couch of, of Queen Esther. But Harbona, one of his chamberlains, gave him offense number two. He says, look over there, king. There's the gallows that Haman had made for Mordecai there at his house. And in the Persian kingdom, to attack a person that was a supporter of the king was the same as attacking the king. Offense number two, say no more. Hang Haman, and you can stand with me tonight, hang Haman on the gallows. And the reversals, several that you could find there in chapter number seven, but the biggest one will be right in the last few verses. And it's crazy because two things have happened up till this time. The good plan that Haman had made for himself for honor from the king, he ended up using for Mordecai. The evil plan that Haman made for Mordecai Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.